1: Welcome to The Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out deep into your retirement or somewhere in between, The Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
2: Welcome to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour uh, is Robert Gignac, who is a author of a, a new book called Rich is a State of Mind, Building Wealth and Happiness, a Blueprint. Welcome to the show, Robert. Great to be
3: here, Jordan. Thank you.
2: Let's just start with a little bit of your background and how you got into creating this book and this whole project.
3: Well, I spent probably the first 15 years of my life in information technology career. Um, Thankfully, I got out of that. Uh, Eventually, started doing some speaking to groups and organizations on personal development, which then turned into basically a career in financial development for uh, clients of the financial industry as well as professionals in it.
2: And and when did you actually do this book, and what was the the reason behind wanting to do the specific book?
3: The Canadian edition of Rich is a State of Mind came out in 2004. The U.S. edition came out in September of 2009. And the reason that I brought the U.S. edition out of the book is that I felt it's never a bad time to learn something new, and the last 18 months have taught many of us an entirely new set of rules as it relates to personal finance. So what is the specific need
2: now uh, since the economy has been through a rough rough time here, what what is I mean, people don't think about rich; they think about survival to some extent. So, why is rich as a state of mind important, particularly now?
3: Well, one of the titles, the the concept comes out of the title itself. Rich being a state of mind that it's not all about money. And I think people who based their entire concept of their their personal value based on the assets they had and what they owned got a little bit of a shock in the last eighteen to twenty four months. With people reevaluating what it's really all about, how much do I really need, uh, the concept of, of North American economy built on credit and consumerism, and that it might be time to reevaluate where we stand.
2: Now, you tell the book kind of as a story, right? Not just a kind of traditional financial book. Oh, tell us kind of absolutely. the structure of how you put this together.
3: Well, the. I guess the elevator pitch, if, if you wanted to call it that, is that Rich to State of Mind is a novel about personal finances seen through the eyes of a humorously dysfunctional American family. And because of that, I think it applies to pretty much everybody we know in terms of a family structure, trying to share information across generations, trying to deal with a couple pieces of, um, I guess you would call family angst or difficulties within the family unit, characters that readers can identify with, and perhaps say, you know, I had that exact same question, and now I get it.
2: So you start with the prologue, uh, which you call the last day in the life. What were you, do you mean by the, the
1: prologue?
3: Well, the book is told backwards in time. It sets up an event that happens, which sets the basis for the whole book, and then rolls back 13 months to show how they got to this point and what led up to that particular seminal event for that family. And because of that, I thought it was a great way to introduce the characters and introduce the theme of the book without giving too much of it away. It's certainly not intended to be a textbook on personal finance. What it is is intended to get people intrigued about the concept, and more importantly, get them to understand that they don't need to do everything all by themselves.
2: Then you talk about uh, what you call the word gets out. Uh, you say, a, a man's family sets him apart from all other living creatures. Only man stands with his children from first to last, from birth to death and to the grave. This is the uh, quote from Robert Nathan. W- what is the the point of this particular chapter?
3: Well, the word gets out, and without giving too much of the story away, one of the characters doesn't make it to the end of the book. And the central narrator, if you will, is a fellow by the name of John Linden, who is financial advisor somebody much like yourself. And his role through the book, particularly in this chapter, his best friend Richard Jarvis has passed away, and his role as part of that relationship is to let the family know not only that it has happened, but what's going to happen next. So what is going to happen? I just give us a sense of what happens here. Well, what, what happens at that point is the story then changes in terms of of John and Richard's discussion, and it rolls back to 13 months earlier when they met his niece and nephew, James and Joyce. And at this point, when I say humorously dysfunctional American family, James and Joyce are in their mid-20s and have just found out as the book opens that they actually have an Uncle Richard. So there's a little bit of a communication problem within this family structure and as you're probably aware of the the concept of the black sheep within the family unit and that indeed was richard somebody who thought differently wanted different things and in his family being different wasn't a good thing so he was ostracized and kind of set apart from the rest now as often cases that when that happens it turns out he was the brightest guy in the family and he's decided he wants to share what he knows with his niece and nephew and that's how the story unfolds over the 13 months, which led up to, uh, I guess, quite frankly, his untimely demise.
2: What was the dysfunctional part of the family that he was a, a black sheep and he was the the smartest guy? Is that what you mean by dysfunctional?
3: Well, a little bit of dysfunction having to do with that. A little bit of dysfunction having to do that a niece and nephew find out 20 in their mid 20s that they actually have an uncle, you know, that a brother to their father and the and the mother based on the niece and nephew, that nobody's ever told them about by the time they got to age 25, yet he lived in the same town they did.
2: So they didn't communicate too well.
3: Communication was not a big thing within this family because Richard's viewpoint on life was that it it wasn't about money. Life was about experiences. It was about accomplishing things at a personal level. It wasn't about a bank account balance or your mutual fund portfolio. But to the remainder of Richard's family, that was just a strange way to look at the world because they were too busy keeping score, where Richard didn't care to keep score at all. What he cared about was what I call the alternate wealth side, his his friendships, his relationships, what he learned, what he shared with other people. It's true that we need to have some money and do some smart things with it, but in Richard's viewpoint is once you've built a solid foundation to work with, then get on with enjoying the rest of your life because, unfortunately, it's over far too soon.
2: Do you think there are a lot of dysfunctional families along these same lines that you're describing in the book?
3: Well, I haven't encountered one yet where somebody's gotten into their 20s only to find out they have relatives they didn't know about. Um, But I do think communication, particularly of a financial nature, is difficult for a lot of families. I know it was difficult for the family I grew up in. And part of the problem with the educational system in North America is they tend to treat personal finance as something that's best left to be taught at home, which is okay if your parents and the family structure you grew up in were good with money. But if they weren't, those are the lessons that get perpetuated, and I think that's caused some of the problems that we've got today.
2: What are some of the lessons that are being taught in that way that are creating dysfunction uh, in society?
3: Well, I think the viewpoint that you can always pay for it later, and the fact that we as a consumeristic society in North America have been living on our credit cards for quite some time, and I don't want to say robbing Peter to pay Paul. We've been maintaining our debt loads and and making credit payments and not going into default as long as we had a steady income stream. But then once that steady income stream got disrupted or the debt started to get out of control or the assets that we thought we had, which was our house and a 401k or an IRA plan, got depleted because the market dropped 20%. Then things started to unravel in a hurry.
2: Is so that the state of where we are today? Is, is People are kind of still in recovery mode from having lost so much when the market went down?
3: I think people are recovering, and they're also reevaluating not only where they are, but how important it is that these things that that might only 18 or 24 months ago have been so important suddenly aren't as important as making sure that we're financially secure and sleeping soundly at night.
2: Yeah. Uh, Then you go on, uh, your next chapter is uh, saying goodbye to a friend. Uh, What is the point of that chapter?
3: Saying goodbye to a friend is Richard's funeral. And his family is absolutely astounded at the number of people and the type of people who showed up at the funeral because Richard's viewpoint was his goal was to have a large impact on a massive amount of people in his life, and what is shown to his family was the fact that he did by the sheer number of people who showed up and the testimonials that were given to him and the eulogies read at his funeral, because they thought he was a loner, kept to himself, didn't have any friends, and as often is the case, appearances are incredibly deceiving.
2: So is this something that you're saying is is of greater value in general, that people should be more interested in their uh, connections, relationships, and so on instead of,
3: as you you call it,
2: keeping score of their finances?
3: Keeping score with money is in some ways a useful thing, but in most ways it's a very dysfunctional thing because at the end of the day money is not going to make you happy. It can do some nice things for you, but at the end of the day what I think we take with us later on in life, are the people we touched, the people we met, and the people that have had an impact on us.
2: You say to discover what's important to you uh, and then to stick to your convictions. Uh, do you find a lot of people don't do that, or why is that important to say?
3: Well, I, th- I think we pay lip service to that from time to time. Um, we talk about our convictions as though they really are our convictions, um, but when push comes to shove and we've got a chance to to do something slightly different, we often head off in a different direction. Okay, we're going to
2: take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest uh, today is Robert Gignac, uh, who is the author of a new book called Rich is a State of Mind, Building Wealth and Happiness, a Blueprint. We'll be back after this.
0: up-to-date business and financial news call now and get the financial information you need 866-472-5790 866-472-5790 the experts are here voice america business network are you ready to go green you've asked and we've heard you voice america presents the green talk network
2: Uh, who is the author of a book called Rich is a State of Mind, Building Wealth and Happiness, a Blueprint.
3: Welcome back to the show, Robert. Glad to be back, Jordan. Thank you.
2: Uh, The next chapter you have is is talking about the genesis of the project, Um, and you start with a Napoleon Hill quote saying, it takes half your life before you discover life is a do-it-yourself project. So what do you mean by the genesis of the project?
3: The genesis of the project is the introduction to the four central characters, James and Joyce, the niece and nephew, uh, Richard and John, the two central older characters. And when they met in a park and Richard posed to them that he would like to teach them what he knew about the concepts of life and personal finance, only if they would do it by sharing it with other people. If they were only interested in it for their own personal gain, he had no interest in sharing with them what he knew. And this was starting to develop the process of not only Richard giving back to his own family, but opening up an avenue for discussion that is in, it is important to give back in general um, in terms of life.
2: Well, is this something you think people resist? Are people very uh, selfish these days and don't want to give back as much as
3: they should? I, I don't think they resist it. I think sometimes we get consumed and busy by life itself. That it's one, Giving back is one of those things I'll get to when I've got some free time, but I think it has to get incorporated as part of an ongoing lifestyle if it's really going to work well.
2: You talk about the, the ability or inability to ask questions. Uh, what is the difference in your life between being able to ask good questions or not?
3: I think for many of us, the reason we don't ask questions that we carry around all the time is that we don't want to look foolish. We think we should know the answer, or we think we should have gotten it as part of our education, or we should know where to go with the advent of the internet and Wikipedia and you know everything at your fingertips on a computer these days. How is it you could possibly have a question that you couldn't already figure out the answer for? But in Richard's viewpoint as the central character of the book, his biggest pet peeve was that it's the unasked question which is the one that stops you from achieving what you want to achieve in life.
2: Why don't you give an example or two of an unasked question that would make a difference in people's lives?
3: One of the unasked questions I carried around with myself for a long time through my 20s was the whole concept of why does everybody get so emotional about money? I never really understood it when I was growing up. Um... In some cases, because in the family structure where I grew up, we didn't have a whole lot. Uh, we did okay, but you looked at other people and you thought, wow, these guys are doing great. They've got you know money to do this and money to do that. And that's when you discover from a life perspective, their life wasn't any better. It was different because they had chosen to fund everything on credit and build a lifestyle rather than a life. And then all of a sudden, things started disappearing out of their lives when finances started to get disrupted as opposed to taking the slow and steady approach. And it was only when I started to ask questions about money and finance that I started to learn about it myself.
2: Now you talk in this chapter a lot about the financial blueprint. Describe what a financial blueprint is and and how does it help somebody get better control of their
3: finances? Well, I I like the concept of blueprint because whenever we're going to build something, be it a a house, a condo, or, or even a garden shed, we have a blueprint that guides us along And there are various parts to that blueprint. There's kind of the 15,000-foot view, which is this is what it's going to look like, and then there's the more detailed view, which shows you you where the walls go and where the connections go, which pieces get nailed in other pieces, the pouring of the concrete foundation. And then you get to the far more detailed blueprint, which might actually show you what types of screws, nails, connectors, wiring you're going to use, the very detailed part. And when it comes to personal finances – I think that people immediately jump to the detailed part. It's what stock should I buy? What mutual fund should I invest in? What type of annuity should I own? When they need to roll back to a slightly less detailed part of the blueprint, which says, what is it I'm trying to accomplish in the first place?
2: And and so, what are some things that they need to ask for the broader view of that blueprint?
3: The broader view are what kind of life goals do I have for myself? What kind of impact am I trying to have on my family in terms of my spouse, my children, their education? What type of message do I want to leave them? Um, Perhaps even for many people, a much broader view of the planet that we live on and what type of impact we're having there. And then once you've got that, you determine what type of goals you need to accomplish in order to achieve it, and then you start drilling down into the details which says, to accomplish these goals, I need X amount of dollars. To get X amount of dollars, I need to be investing in certain things. What are those things? And then the layers of the blueprint all start coming together to form the end picture.
2: You talk about uh, asking the question, what is rich, and having five-by-seven cards printed and putting them all over the place. What is the purpose of that uh, exercise?
3: I think what is rich is a fascinating question because it only has three words. It's not that complex, yet of your millions of listeners who are listening today the nice thing is that every single one of them is going to have a slightly different definition of what rich is and i did some research when the canadian edition of the book came out i sent out 1500 emails pretty much everybody i knew in life at that point and asked them to answer that question for me of the 1500 requests i got back about 600 replies which apparently the statisticians tell me is pretty high response rate And of those 600 plus replies, there were only three people out of those 600 that actually quoted me a dollar figure. What everybody else did was they tried to paint me a picture of what their life would look like if they ever answered that question, what is rich, with a resounding yes.
2: And so, I mean, is that the right way to do it, or do you think having a dollar figure is the right way to go?
3: I think a dollar figure in some ways, comes out of understanding what it is you're trying to accomplish in the first place. Because the, the interesting thing about being rich is you can see two people walking down the street, and one of them is a woman carrying a purse who has $50 in her purse and considers herself the richest person she knows. The next person walking beside her um, could be a young female executive that might have a million dollars in 401k and IRA investments, but she's so worried she's going to lose it, she can't sleep at night. So then the question is, which of them is really rich?
2: So it's an attitude change, you're really saying.
3: I I definitely think it's an attitude change. In
2: your next chapter, which you call, What Does Rich Mean?, uh, you start with a quote from Ben Franklin saying, uh, be studious in your profession and you'll be learned, but be industrious and frugal and you'll be rich. Why is that an appropriate uh, quote to begin this, this chapter? What does rich mean?
3: Well, I think part of what we need to learn now is by studying what's going on around us in order to get us to understand the basics of personal finance, what the schools aren't teaching us. But by being industrious and actually taking that learning, the frugal part, um, I go back and forth on this. The book is not about don't have any fun, don't spend any money. There are lots of books out there like that, and I'm not sure I like that approach. I think you should have fun along the path because if you deprive yourself to the point where you say, I'm going to have all my fun when I'm 65 years old, the problem is statistically many of us won't get to 65, unfortunately. And so we've deprived ourselves along the way. But the industrious part is simply now learning what we need to know and applying it because there are two parts to the equation there's knowing and then there's actually doing you know stuff jordan and i know stuff and there's sometimes stuff i bet you both of us know that we don't actually apply and so knowing it really doesn't do us any good until we get to the application and that's the industrious part of mr franklin's quote
2: do you think people have lost that to some extent that industriousness uh particularly with so many things online, we're doing things with our minds, not with our hands anymore. Are we kind of a less industrial, industrious society we had been?
3: Well, I think you can be very industrious with your mind, um, but it's the viewpoint that... I don't want to say life was too easy, um, which led up to what happened in the last 18, 24 months. But I think many of us fell into the trap, and at times I, I do the same thing. I'm a human like everybody else, Not that the future would take care of itself, don't worry, everything's going to be fine, and then all of a sudden, when things went off the rails, it's needing to re-examine and re-evaluate where where we're currently at. Hmm.
2: Okay. Uh, Now, you also say that money makes people behave in strange and mysterious ways. Why is that, and what are some of the ways you're referring to here?
3: Well, there's a quote I use in the book that, that says, money is a great slave, it's a lousy master. And the viewpoint on that is that money can do some good things for you. It can buy you things. It can buy you protection. It can buy you shelter. It can buy you food. Um, it can't buy you happiness, and it can't buy you love. But as a master, you can you can ask money to do things for you. But if you're a slave to the money, which says, it's all about the money, I need to make more, I need to work harder, I need to focus on the future so much that I'm ignoring the present, then sometimes... We will create a, a very unhealthy life for ourselves in the pursuit of money. It, it's funny, there, there's the biblical quote that gets often twisted around, which says that money is the root of all evil, which in reality, I'm not a very religious person myself, but the actual quote is, the love of money is the root of all evil. And I think that's the viewpoint. Money's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. But if you're modifying your behavior and doing things that aren't positive in order to obtain it, then you've got a problem.
2: I'm just saying that's what's happening a lot these days is that people kind of go I, for the money and not the
3: uh, well, what it can bring I, you. Well, certainly there's, there's a, a segment that if, if you looked at the behavior of certain corporate members um, around the world in different corporations, you would say they acted very immorally for their own personal gain, which led to the, you know, in some ways the financial collapse or the financial crisis that many of us suffered the end result from. Um, but the book itself is not intended to be any kind of statement about what was going on at, at the corporate levels around the world, but it has to do with the fact that understand what money can and can't do for you and use that as the building base for figuring out how you want to approach your, your own personal financial future.
2: So some of the words you have and what rich means, uh, you're saying you really shouldn't be borrowing more than you really can afford or spending more than you can uh, earn. Uh, and that rich ultimately means freedom. Is that that's the, way, the most important kind of analogy to it?
3: Richard, in, in the discussion between the characters in the book, when they finally penned him down, pegged him down and said, you know, what does it mean to you? Um, he went to the whiteboard and wrote freedom because of the concept that having money and taking care of your personal finances gives you the freedom to do what you want, when you want, with the people that you want. And ultimately, if you can't do that, then how much fun are you having?
2: Right. Okay, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Robert Gignac, uh, whose uh, new book is called Rich is a State of Mind, uh, Building Wealth and Happiness, a Blueprint. We'll be back after this.
1: both their products and services are invited to become members of the money answers network the public can sign up for membership in the money answers network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources to learn more visit www.moneyanswers.com get ahead with money answers
0: when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. My guest uh, this hour is Robert Gignac, uh, whose book is called Rich is a State of Mind, uh, Building Wealth and Happiness, a Blueprint. Welcome back to the show, Robert. Glad
3: to be back, Jordan.
2: Thank Uh, you. Before we get into it, just tell people about the uh, website uh, related to the book and how they can get it and what other things are going on at that website.
3: The website for the book is www.richisastateofmind.com, all one word. And on the website, you'll find articles that I've written about personal finance, about leadership. Um, you'll find some reviews of the book, what the press has had to say, what readers have had to say. You can also order the book is by linking through to Amazon.com in the U.S., or uh, chapters.ca for the Canadian edition of the book, depending on which version you might like to order.
2: You have a whole chapter on goal-setting, and you start with an Anthony Robbins quote saying, uh, people are not lazy, they simply have impotent goals, that is, goals that do not inspire them. So how do you get goals that inspire you into action?
3: One of the things goal-setting has become very, very important to me um, and it might have been one of those questions that I never did ask a long time ago, Jordan, which, which once I asked it and started to understand the process, became much, much easier. In terms of goals, not every goal in your life should be financial. You should have goals about your personal health. You should have goals about your relationships, your friendships, your family, um, perhaps spiritual goals if that's part of your life. But once you start accumulating these goals what then happens is you may determine that certain financial things need to happen in order to accomplish certain goals. For example, for myself, I happen to have a thing for bears and I always wanted to go to Alaska to take pictures of them. And my wife and I set a goal. I was going to get to do this, do a fly in bear viewing. And we determined that it was going to take five years based upon how much we thought it was going to cost to do this. And the end of it, I did get to go. It took 11 years before that happened. Why? Well, because life happens. Things changed. A couple of job losses, one for me, one for her, Uh, reevaluation of priorities at certain points, but I never lost focus. And more importantly, my financial advisor never let me lose focus of that goal, that even though it took 11 years, it got done. The funny thing about goals is many people when it didn't happen in the five years, would have gone, "Oh, it's never going to happen," and just walked away.
2: You know, you have a, uh, a, a suggestion to have another five by seven card uh, saying, "What is the eighth wonder of the world?" What, what is what is that about?
3: The eighth wonder of the world is claimed by Baron de Rothschild circa sometime in the late eighteen hundreds. Is compound interest and the ability for you to earn money on your money and then earn money on that money plus the additional money in order to have a better and more successful financial future and in some degree it's the basis upon which almost all of our financial futures are based we invest to earn money and then we invest that money to earn more money
2: and that leads into the next chapter which is what you call the world of wonders which is about compounding what are some things that people don't understand about the power of compounding and maybe you can give them some ideas of how powerful it is
3: Compounding is incredibly powerful, and one of the examples I use in the book, and I often use this in seminars as well, particularly with high school and college students, is I'll approach one of them and say, I've got a question for you. I can write you a check right now for a million dollars and give it to you. You could go cash it, or you could take what's behind door B. And what's behind door B is for the next 31 days, I'll give you a penny starting on day one, and I'll double it every day for the next 31 days. Which do you want? And I give them a couple seconds to answer the question. Almost invariably, they get lured by the concept of having a million dollars. And so then I go and I write the numbers on the board, much the same way uh, it's written out in the book. And when you get to about day 15, halfway through the month, and they realize you've only got $163, generally they find this quite amusing. And I said, well... Maybe maybe I've made some kind of mistake here. Maybe I shouldn't have made this deal. And then by the time you end up writing the 30th day and you're at $5.3 million, they start to understand the power of compound interest.
2: Yes. And so how should one apply, if you know how powerful compounding is, how should you apply that to your financial life?
3: Well, part of the interesting part about compound interest is you then invariably get into a discussion at some point about risk and reward and the concept that you can generate a higher set of compound interest on your investments if you're willing to take more risk. Well, as many of us have seen... Over the last 18 to 24 months, we thought we understood what risk was as it relates to investments in our IRAs and 401ks, only to find them falling by 20, 25, 30, 40% in some cases. And then we've discovered that risk and reward really are something that we need to deal with on an ongoing basis. The one thing that is interesting about compound interest that a lot of people I talk to, particularly clients of the financial industry, didn't understand until the last 24 months, was that if you had, say, $1,000 and you earned 10% on it, well, your $1,000 became 1100 And then if you lost 10% the next year, you actually have less money than you started with. You have $990. And most people would go, when it comes to math, they understand the concept of math with whole numbers. Plus 10 minus 10 leaves you zero. But plus 10%, minus 10% actually leaves you in a worse off position than when you started because of the because you lost the lar- from the larger amount of money. And I think that's one of the things that people really struggled with over the last 24 months. They had several years of r- pretty good solid returns, wiped out by two years of bad returns. Yeah, that happens to people all the time. Uh, your next chapter is what you call... Uh, Who else would you pay?
2: This is about paying yourself first. Absolutely. What what is the advantage of of doing that over the way most people do it?
3: The problem, and with myself too when I was younger, I did a budget. And the budget had mortgage and car payments and going to the coffee shop and buying compact discs. And I put a big circle around the bottom number said, and that's what I'll save at the end of the month because that's what was left. Well, the problem was unanticipated expenses, always seemed to eat up everything that was in that bottom number. And it wasn't until I got to the point where the first line in the budget was paying myself first, and then it didn't matter if you spent all of the rest, that you were going to be okay for planning for your financial future because that had been taken care of. So what are some ways that people can pay themselves first that's automatic that will make sure it happens? Well, certainly almost every employer that I'm aware of now has automatic payroll deduction, that can either go into a retirement account. In many cases, it's being matched by the employer, which is a great way to build your financial future. Or you can have it siphoned off into a separate bank account, which I always encourage people, do not get a debit card for that bank account, which you've siphoned off the money for, because it's really easy to go out on a Saturday night, pull $100 out of that account going, don't worry, I'll put it back in next week. Unfortunately, next week never comes.
2: No. Uh, then you talk about what you call the money factory, uh, about how you can make your money grow. To, to, how can people have the money factory work for them?
3: Well, the money factory concept um, is the concept of putting small amounts of money away for a long period of time and having it turn into larger amounts of money later. And particularly here in Canada and the U.S., in Canada, we have a thing called an RSP uh, retirement savings plan, and you've got 401Ks and IRAs. And the interesting thing is there are really two types. You've got the tax-deferred, and then you've got ones where there's no tax benefit up front in terms of a tax credit, but all of the income comes in tax-free. And the book talks about both kinds. But in the tax-deferred kind, what happens is you get a tax credit up front, you get to invest more money, but the government would like their tax back later, which is what makes it tax-deferred. But sometimes when I talk to people, they're under the assumption that tax-deferred also means tax-free. And those people, I think, are going to be incredibly disappointed 15, 20, 30 years from now. So what is the
2: priority in which you should put money into a retirement plan amongst the different choices that Americans
3: have? It's an interesting concept. And one of the things that is... I guess, inspired me to talk to people about this is the viewpoint that with the number of options you have available, I sometimes find it astounding that people want to sort through personal finances all by themselves. They're willing to hire a coach to help them with their life skills. They're willing to hire somebody to change the oil in their car, cut their lawn, plant their garden, uh, paint the windows. But when it comes to personal finances, oh, I don't need any help with this. I can figure it all out. And when you're talking about the dozens of types of options, and in the U.S., the big thing that's happening this year is the ability to roll um, into a Roth-style plan and it, with tax deferral options and how all of those decisions get made. I really do find it interesting, Jordan, that people want to figure this out all by themselves.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it's easier than they probably think it is, actually. All right. We're going to go to our break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, my guest this hour is Robert Gignac, who's written a book called Rich is a State of Mind, uh, Building Wealth and Happiness, a Blueprint. Uh, the website to find out more about it is richisastateofmind.com. We'll be back with a final segment after this.
0: Were you full of questions such as why, how, and what if? Did you allow yourself to be carefree, to dance and sing? Did you create just for fun? Want to feel that way again? Reclaim your natural curiosity and creativity with Dr. Carol Stalka on Stargazing Stories, sparking your creativity. Revitalize your life, work, and relationships. Be more playful, be bold, imagine, explore, and live more creatively every day. Tune in Wednesdays at 11 a.m. in the East, 8 a.m. in the West on 7th Wave Network.
2: My guest this hour is Robert Gignac, uh, who is an author of a new book called Rich is a State of Mind, uh, Building Wealth and Happiness, a Blueprint. Uh, the website to find out more about it is richisastateofmind.com. Welcome back to the show, Robert. Thanks, Jordan. You have a chapter of what you call the three guarantees. What are the three guarantees?
3: The three guarantees, as is, is obviously known to most people, are death, taxes, and inflation the the fact that we're not going to be here sometimes as long as we like that we're going to be taxed for all of the income and assets that we have and that over a long period of time inflation will eat away at the value of our investments
2: And so, what are you supposed to do about those three inevitabilities
3: well certainly the one thing we do with regards to death is we insure ourselves against untimely demise we have a will that protects our assets and determines where they're supposed to go In terms of taxes, we work with tax professionals to make sure that we only pay the tax that we have to pay. And it's funny because I've I've said in speeches to people, I'm a happy guy to pay taxes. I really am because we get some great benefit out of it. We get police and fire and uh, all of the other things that come with being a part of a, a good society and that takes care of us. But at the end of the day, I don't want to pay ten cents more than I absolutely have to, and that's why we use tax professionals to make sure that doesn't happen.
2: You then have a chapter called "Risky Business" uh, about uh, the, the risk of taking of starting a business and and all of that. What what are some things that people should know before they get involved in, in starting a business?
3: Well, under the concept of risk, it's is it going to be as simple as we think it is? If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And how much risk are we going? Are we willing to take on to achieve the goals that we've got in our life? And risk is funny because when investment advisors talk to clients all the time, they try to develop what they call a risk profile. And the interesting thing about compound interest and risk profiles is that people confuse a percentage drop with a dollar value drop. And let me give you an example, Jordan. When I was younger... An investment advisor said to me, How would you feel if you lost twenty percent of your money? I went, well, I wouldn't like that, but you know, I'm I'm fairly young, I've got forty years ahead of me. You know, I could live with that. Well, when you have fifty thousand dollars and you lose twenty percent, well you lose ten thousand and you still got forty. If you lose that same twenty percent and you happen to have a million dollars, you've just lost two hundred thousand. It's the exact same percentage. But the effect on you mentally is a lot, lot different.
2: So uh, how should people manage risk? I mean, you have a list of the different kinds of investments and what's higher and lower risk. Do you get a sense that most people take too much risk or too little risk?
3: People who want to get rich quick take too much risk. People who have decided that it's going to be really for the long term often take too little, particularly when they're looking at Investment horizons. When you're looking at average retirement ages of being in the 60s and having to fund a retirement for, in some cases, 20, 25, 30 years, with without having a job or an income stream, that's a huge amount of time that we have to produce income for. And generally, as we get older, we get much less risk, We get risk adverse. We start moving out of the stock market. We start going into things like CDs and annuities, which in a low-interest-rate environment like today don't pay you enough to cover off inflation, which was one of those life's guarantees. And then all of a sudden, the big fear becomes, not will we lose our money, it's will we outlive our money.
2: You have various charts showing how long it takes to, uh, the the money will disappear, withdrawing at different levels and different rates of inflation. What, What surprises people about all that?
3: I think what surprises people is they think that they can take out the amount that they earn every year. So if I'm earning 8% on my investments and I'm I'm retired, I can take out 8% a year. When they fail to factor in the inflation rate, which is slowly eating away at their assets, and then all of a sudden the inflation combined with the withdrawal rate, then combined with the odd year of subpar performance, means that they actually end up losing and using up their nest egg much quicker than they thought. The basic reading, which I'm sure you're aware of and you talk to people about, is that the general accepted percentage is 4%. You should never, never remove more than 4% of your nest egg at any given point in time during retirement if you expect to outlive your money.
2: Yeah. You, you have a uh, kind of a psychological um, cycle, I guess you might say, from going from optimism back to optimism and going through euphoria and despondency and panic and all these other stages here. What should people make of a cycle like that and where they are at a particular time?
3: The the psychology of investing is interesting, and having a B.A. in psychology myself, I I find it intriguing. But we we get optimistic about the types of investment we're doing and about the future we're going to have, and then all of a sudden we get to the point where we convince ourselves that it's never ever going to be bad again. Life is great, I I don't have to worry about my money. And then things start to happen, you know, investments start to lose some value, market conditions change, Um, you know, that euphoria we had turns into fear, turns into panic. And then it's at the point where it's never going to be good again. Why am I even doing this? I should just put my money in the mattress. And then all of a sudden we get two or three quarters of good positive growth in the market, and the economy starts to pick up, and the cycle starts all over again. And what I think people should strive to do is when things are going well, never think they're going outstanding. And when things are going poorly, never think it's desperate time to panic.
2: Where would you say we are now in the cycle of uh, greed and fear and everything you just mentioned?
3: To be honest, I, I think we're around the hope and relief. I, I don't think we're optimistic yet, but I think we've gone past the uh, the low point of panic and desperation. Um, I think we are seeing some positive signs. When you, you listen to the news reports, they they like to throw the phrase green shoots around um, so that we're starting to see some of that both in the United States and in Canada. Uh, I recently spent some time in Europe, and they're starting to be a little more optimistic. Um, the nice thing is, I don't think that moving forward, based upon what's happened in the last 24 months, we'll get that euphoric high again, which says we can ignore everything that's going on around us. Yeah. You then
2: have a whole chapter on uh, investment allocation. What are some tips on how people should allocate their money amongst the different uh, choices they have?
3: Allocation is an interesting concept because it it harkens back to the advice our parents gave us all along, which is don't put all of your eggs in one basket. But when it comes to investment allocation, 47 baskets isn't any better. It's having the right mix for the long term between whether or not you have some stocks, whether or not you have mutual funds, whether or not you have CDs, um, how you utilize your 401k, your IRA, how you might have just money sitting in the bank that you're using to live on short term, uh, should you suffer a job loss or a short term disruption to your income, and all of these pieces and how they fit together become very important for forming a solid financial future.
2: You end with uh, creating a game game plan uh, based on all these different factors we've talked about. What are some steps people should be making sure they do to create a game plan?
3: I like the, the concept of sports analogies myself, and the the, the fact of the game plan is that every single team, uh, when they enter a sporting event, has a plan A, B, and C. Uh, The goal is always to win, but then if it turns out that you're down some points early or down a couple of touchdowns because the book uses a football analogy, then you move to plan B. You change the plan, you backtrack a little, you change your focus with the ultimate goal of, I don't have to win the game. And not only, I can't win the game in the second quarter. The goal is to be winning the game when the final bell goes, and where we want that bell to go for any one of us is going to be a very individual decision, which, not surprisingly, rolls right back to the front with the discussion of goals and what it is we're trying to accomplish.
2: Very good. Well, we gave people a taste of the book. There's a lot more in there. Uh, Richard's book is called Rich is a State of Mind. His website is richisastateofmind.com. Thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, Richard, Robert. It's been
3: a pleasure, Jordan. Thank you for having me as a guest.
2: Thanks again, and we'll have you uh, uh, another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now.